with us. So if you read Psalm 139, actually if you just read the Bible, you realize that it's all personal. It's all personal with God. It's personal between the Creator and His creatures. If we don't understand anything else, <laughs> if we just give the Bible a superficial read, we understand that it's personal. I still remember when I was first converted, I be began to read through the Bible and I was repeatedly struck by this personal God and His desire to be in a personal relationship with His creation. Creation was a very personal act of God. As you, you may remember the Genesis account, God breathed life into man. Sin was and sin is a very personal act of rebellion against God. Don't think any less of sin than what it is. It's a personal act of rebellion against your Creator. That's what sin is. Redemption is a very personal and self-sacrificial act of the Son of God for His people. It's personal with God. Repentance, faith, obedience are highly personal acts of man in response to this God who saves. Beloved, it's all personal. If you don't think it's personal, you've not rightly understood the Bible. You've not rightly understood what's at stake in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very personal. And God means to have a personal relationship with His people. He will settle for nothing less. Religion will not get it done for you or me or anyone else on the planet. God means to be in personal relationship with His people. As one theologian rightly said, the ultimate fact about this universe is a personal God. I know atheists and agnostics, but particularly atheists hate this. They hate the concept of a personal God. It's why they deny Him. Uh, you may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. Romans 1 tells us there's no such thing as an atheist. Every man knows in his heart he was created. Every man knows this. It's written on his heart. It's written on his mind. You may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. This personal aspect of God, it's highlighted in His name. Remember what God said to Moses. I am who I am. Right? I am who I am. God's answer to Moses uh, contains two personal pronouns and a relative pronoun. It's personal with God. <laughs> it's personal. It's never not personal. I know that much of pseudo-Christianity has turned it into some kind of brain-dead, heart-dead formula. Beloved, don't believe it. It's a lie. It's not a formula. You can't condense God into a formula. You must know Him. It's what He requires. 
God is personal. He thinks, He chooses, He cares, He gives, He makes and keeps promises, He reveals Himself. He is compassionate, He is gracious, He is kind, He is merciful, He is loving, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus Christ categorically defined the personal nature of true biblical saving Christianity. John 17.3, one of the most oft-repeated verses from this pulpit, this is eternal life, what? That they may what? Know you as Jesus prays to His Father. It's all in the knowing. And I'll just stop and ask you, do you know God? Or have you been playing religion with God? It's one reason we're a small church, because I ask questions like that. <laughs> But you know what? Whether you like my sermon or not, it's not the most important thing to me. The most important thing to me is that I have integrity with the Word of God and can I stand before Him and give an account? Why didn't I... I don't want God to ask me, Jim, why didn't you ask my people? Or why didn't you ask the people sitting in the church September 4th, 2016, if they knew me? or if they were merely settling for religion. I always like to push you around a little bit when you come. This is what God does to me as I prepare my sermon. He's always pushing me around a little bit. Jim, go deeper with me. Love me more. It's always personal. What is the foremost command of the Bible? Someone tell me. What is the first command? What is the foremost command? What is the summary command of all the, the Old Testament? It's not do religion and hope you get in. It's love me above all else. Love me. It's biblical Christianity, beloved. It's personal. Jesus Christ's born-again faith is all about knowing and loving God. It cannot be impersonal. It cannot be sterile. It cannot be detached. It cannot be indifferent. It cannot be emotionless. It cannot be a faith of convenience. If we know Him, we have given ourselves to Him. And anything less is not knowing Him, beloved. And I challenge each one of you in here tonight, is it personal with you? Do you know the living God? Ultimately, it's all personal with I Am. Between every human being and His Creator, every human being will personally stand before His personal God. Every human being will give a personal account of their lives. No human being can elude, evade, or avoid this Universal reality. We know Him or we don't. We love Him or we don't. We follow Him or we don't. So, I'm asking you lovingly as your pastor or your preacher tonight, the man standing before you opening the Word of God, do you know Him? Do you know Him? Scripture reveals that biblical Christianity is dynamic, it's committed, it's passionate, and it is intimate. I read Psalm 73 
25 to you earlier. David says, Besides you, O God, I desire nothing on earth. Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ your preeminent and premier desire? It's what Christianity is. It's not coming to church on Sunday. That's a good thing. You should come to church on Sunday. Real Christians come to church on Sunday. But not out of some sense of, you know, I'm self-righteous and I want other people to see me or, or this is the right thing to do or I'll impress God. It's not about that. It's I love God. I love the Word of God. I love the people of God. Where else would I be on Sunday, right? The day that the Lord came out of the grave. Where else would I be but with His people? Yeah, so that's what, that's what we do Paul said, I count all things to be lost in view of their surpassing value of what? Someone tell me. In view of their surpassing value of, of religious performance. What does he say? He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. It's always the knowing, beloved. I, I say this to you in love. It's always in the knowing. It's always relational with the biblical God. You say, Jim, what has all this got to do with Psalm 139? Did you notice how many pronouns were in the psalm? You haven't had a chance to read it yet, so of course you can't answer that question. There are 49 first personal pronouns in Psalm 139. There are 30 second person pronouns in reference to God. David understands it's all personal with God. It's always been personal. It always will be personal. Religion just gets in the way. We don't need to do religious stuff. We just need to know the living God and follow. <laughs> it's the operative word of the Gospel. Every man and woman Jesus encounters, He simply says, follow Me. Follow Me. It's the best offer you'll ever get, beloved. <laughs> It's the best offer or invitation you will ever get. Biblical Christianity is nothing less than a sacred love affair. Augustine, fifth, famous 5th century theologian, said it like this, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. So here's the outline for Psalm 139. David's talking about the Lord here. He says, God is an omniscient God. He's the all-knowing God. You heard the verses read earlier, verses 1-6. through six. God is the omnipresent God. He is the all-present God. Verses 7-12. through 12. God is the God of omnipotence. He's the almighty God in creation. Verses 13-18. through 18. And lastly, the God of the Bible is the righteous God who judges the wicked, verses 19 to 24. So let's begin in earnest here with the text. You heard it read. I won't reread the first six verses. You heard those read earlier. But listen to how personal this is. The, omniscient, the omniscience of God uncovers and promotes either intimacy or enmity. Intimacy or enmity. God knows everything about you. He knows the word on your tongue 
before you say it, verse 4. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways, verse 3. He scrutinizes your path and your, your rising up and your laying down. Verse 1, the Lord has searched His people and He knows them. Verse 5, He has enclosed me behind and before and He's laid His hand upon me. David confesses such knowledge. Verse 6 is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain unto it. God knows everything about you. You cannot hide anything from God. <laughs> and I've been doing this for a long time. I'm 61 years old. I started ministry at age 29. People actually think they can fool God. I can do some religion. I can be basically a moral person. I can pay my taxes. I can cut my grass. I don't kick dogs. Whatever. God will let me in. It's not about that, beloved. Are you in Christ? Do you know Christ? Yes, Christianity is exclusive. Well, actually, every religion is exclusive. And I know the world hates biblical Christianity because we say we are the only way. Well, the only reason we say we're the only way is guess why? God said it. Jesus Christ said it. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. This omniscience of God, as I said, somewhat in ele elegantly, the omniscience of God, it promotes either intimacy or enmity. C.S. Lewis says it this way, the omniscience of God puts us in a terrible fix. Okay? It's how C.S. Lewis says it. He goes on, Christianity is a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. For we have made ourselves the enemies of God, and this is a terrifying fact. You understand this, right, beloved? If you are outside of Christ, you are the enemy of God. I don't care how much religion you do. C.S. Lewis is exactly right. God really knows us, as David says, not only in our deeds, but in our thoughts. Ezekiel 11.5, I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. How uncomfortable does that make you? God knows your thoughts. He knows my thoughts. I can't hide one sin from God. It's all laid bare before His holy eye. You can fool me, I can fool you, but nobody fools God. Nobody. And David's words here in the first six verses of Psalm 139 make that clear. The omniscience of God for the unbeliever is a terrifying thing. Not one thing can be hidden. Psalm 90 verse 8, the secret sin is before God. You can hide it from mankind. You can hide it from the police. You can hide it from your girlfriend. You can hide it from your wife. But you can't hide it from God. 
Beloved, I, I hope that part of what we're hearing David say engenders within us a desire to repent of whatever secret sin we are holding dear. C.S. Lewis is right. Apart from Jesus Christ, this is a terrifying thing that a holy, righteous God knows all of my sin. Our mission is for the believer. It's a beautiful thing. It's a precious thing. It's illustrated in, in Peter in John 21. Uh, you remember, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And does anybody remember what Peter said? Oh Lord God, you know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. Praise the Lord. I've said it to you many times on the day that nobody can tell I'm a Christian because I've acted so badly. God knows I am. God knows I'm a Christian. God knows I love Jesus today, even if I haven't acted like I love Jesus today. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that an awesome thing? God knows my heart. He knows I love Him. So we have enmity confirmed or we have intimacy confirmed in the, in the omniscience of God. Two takeaways from the first six verses of Psalm 139. This is why religious performance is always a waste of time. You know, I tell people, listen, if it's just about religion to you, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. It's a waste of your time and everybody else's. And if you read the Old Testament particularly, God hates it. When men come to Him with brain-dead, heart-dead, rote religion, God hates it. So I exhort you, beloved, don't, don't play that game. Verse 1, God searches us and He knows us. Verse 2, He understands our thoughts from afar. Verse 3, He scrutinizes and is intimately acquainted with all our ways. Verse 4, He knows every word before it's on our tongue. Verse 5, He encloses us and He's laid His hand upon us. Verse 6, David expresses his amazement, awe, and adoration at God's boundless and unfathomable omniscience that is echoed in in the words of Romans 11.33, you remember the famous words of Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's move on. Verses 7-12. through 12. Let me read those for you. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there Your hand will lead me, and Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to You, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to You, David says, to the Lord. Verse 7, not that David wanted to escape the presence of God. No, but to provoke worship in the contemplation of the breathtaking reality of God's omniscience. This is a rhetorical question. Okay, 
This is a rhetorical question. God said through His prophet Jeremiah, Am I not a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? What a beautiful sentiment. He is a near God. We saw this in Psalm 34-7 some months ago as we touched on it. The Lord encamps around those who fear Him. The Lord encamps around those who fear Him. He is our protection. He is our high tower. He is our fortress. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? God not only created heaven and earth, He fills them. Okay? He fills them. It's what the, the seemingly infinite cosmos is all about. That you would get some small sense of just how great God is. He's an infinite God. It's what, it's, it's what the universe is about. We're supposed to look out into the stars and see the glory of God. Psalm 19, 1 and 2, right? The heavens are what? Someone tell me. The heavens are declaring what? The glory of God. I was reading a theologian this, this morning. No man has an excuse. His glory is on display, at least in some small measure, in the created order. And His glory is on display in the, uh, the, the Word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. No man will have an excuse before God. I didn't know. I didn't see. Wrong. Every man has seen the glory of God. Every man. Every man has seen it. God fills the heavens and the earth. Verse 8, David says, whether I'm in heaven or Sheol, God is there. What what does Sheol mean? It can have three meanings. In the depths of the earth, it can mean the place of the dead, or it can mean hell. Does God's omnipresence reach into hell? Well, of course it does. By definition, it must. If God is truly omnipresent, He is present in hell in His fierce wrath. As Charles Spurgeon said, Famous 19th century sermon, uh, preacher, he says, Of course, the presence of God produces differing effects in heaven and hell, but He is unquestionably there, the bliss of one, the terror of the other. That might be a new thought to some of you. But by definition, if God is omnipresent, He is everywhere. Verses 9-12, through 12, David says, Whether I fly or whether I swim, God's hand leads me and He holds me. He says, Whether I'm in the darkness or in the light, God is holding me. There's no darkness to God. He always knows where I am. He's always with me where I am. Right? Isn't this a great comfort to the true believer? It's a beautiful thing. As we've been talking about really for the last couple of years, the Lord laid this on my heart a couple of years ago. We can live huge and die well because He is God. You call yourself a Christian? You're supposed to live your faith huge out there. It's not just, I come to church when it's convenient. That's a good thing. Hopefully more, more often than when it's just convenient. Hopefully it's a commitment you've made. 
to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. But you can live huge out there and you can die well. I watched my father die. I was with my father, a man who was a deacon in the church, a man who I loved and respected, a man who the whole community loved. And he died well. He knew he was about to step into glory. He died well. God's people are supposed to live huge and die well. We're not afraid of death. Death has no power on us. It's simply a transition for us. We just step into the presence of God. As I like to say to you, we can do all that God says because He will do all that He says. One of my favorite questions to ask you is, how many people did Nebuchadnezzar... Isn't that awful? The preacher's phone. Sorry. Um, that happens to me about every once in a while. Um, how many people did... Nebuchadnezzar throwing the fire. Three. Let me see if I can turn this off. Here we go. Perfecto. Okay, three. How many did Nebuchadnezzar see in the fire? Four. I know I ask you this question a lot. But my question to you is, do you live like that's true? When you feel all alone in the world and at the university and at, at your workplace and in the neighborhood and, and nobody really believes in Jesus. A lot of people talk about it, but nobody really believes Him. Nobody really loves Him. You know, you're in that, you're, in, you're all by yourself. Are you really all by yourself? No! He's with you! Right? Even in His martyrdom. Even in Stephen's martyrdom, Jesus was with him. The heavens opened and Stephen saw a vision of the Lord Jesus, beloved, I'm going to challenge you to live huge and be ready to die well. You call yourself a Christian, go out there and be one. Don't go out there and pretend to be one. Go out there and be one. And what, what, what do Christians do? James chapter something? <laughs> one, I think. James chapter one. What do Christians do? We do the Word, right? We do the Word. We don't merely... Talk the Word. We live the Word. We incarnate the Word. Verses 13 to 18. For you formed my inward parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they are all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. Think about that. God's thoughts toward you. Outnumber the sand. Let me finish verse 18. When I awake, I am still with 
you. God is the master designer, master programmer, master engineer, master artisan. And the womb of the woman is His studio. It's what I've said to you whenever the topic of abortion comes up. Abortion is not simply murder. Abortion is a satanic attack on the image of God in the womb of woman. That's the loftiest biblical argument against abortion. If you have questions about abortion, we have a great little book over here. If you've been a victim of abortion, you can find forgiveness and wholeness in Jesus Christ and in this church. But the loftiest biblical argument against abortion is that it is an attack on the image of God in the womb. David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And of course, David didn't know near what you and I know. Go ask a microbiologist how fearfully and wonderfully you are made. Go ask somebody who studies DNA. Go ask them about the code within every one of your cells. Go ask them about the divine language, the 3.5 billion characters in every one of your one trillion cells. Do you guys know how fearfully and wonderfully you're made? Do you know? Do you know that those 3.5 billion characters, they spell Elijah perfectly, right? All this DNA inside him, it just spells Elijah, right? God did that. You ask any honest programmer and he'll tell you it's the most sophisticated code in the cosmos. What God has written inside the human cell. And then these silly people want to talk about silly things. <laughs> I won't go into it. I could get off on it. I won't go into it. Um, I have several examples here, but I'm going to truncate some things. It's my next book, by the way. So, um, suffice to say, if you don't understand how fearfully and wonderfully made you are, just read some science. Just some easy science. Just read some easy science. And you will understand what David is saying to us. And did you know David, David says, did you notice David says, my soul knows it. I know I'm the handiwork of God. Right? You're not a grown-up microbe. You're, you're, you're the handiwork of God. God crafted you in the womb of your mother. He did that intimately. It's personal. You are His personal handiwork. David says, I know it. And because he knows it, he lives it. And I'm asking you, do you know it? Do you know it? Do you know you are fearfully and wonderfully made? And will you go out in the world and live like a fearfully and wonderfully made human being from the mighty hand of God? Let me read 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 from the Message Bible. It's a paraphrase. Eugene Peterson writes, Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit, 
Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? God owns the whole works, body and soul. So let people see God in and through your body. You get it? It's one of the things I think the Lord is saying to us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Not only physically, but in a soulish way, we can be in intimate relationship with the living God. I've always loved this verse 16. I quote it quite often. The days that were ordained for me, uh, they were ordained for me uh, before there was one of them. Do you know what David is saying to us here, beloved? He's saying that you will not die one second sooner then you're supposed to. God has ordained your days. So why not just be fearless? I'm not calling you to be careless. I'm calling you to be fearless. Your days are ordained. They are numbered. God's in charge. We sang it. He's the sovereign God. It's what Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 11. Walk in the day that God has given you. Meaning, use the years you have. Use them. Don't waste them. Use them. Be fearless. Nobody can take your life until it's time to go home. It's one of the things that the Lord is saying to us here in this psalm. Verse 16, David says, as I contemplate who God is and how God designed and built me and how He exercises His sovereignty in my life, I am filled with wonder. We sang it, awestruck wonder. And back to this thing about His personal thoughts toward us are infinite. This is a beautiful thing. As long as God's been God, he's, He's had you on His mind. You say, Jim, I'm in a terrible fix. Oh, guess what? God has known about that forever. He's known about that fix forever. And He is at work to bring good out of that trial if you are in one just now. God has known and God is at work in the lives of His people God personally makes sure that not one good thing has been left undone as it relates to your redemption, your sanctification, and your eternal inheritance. At the end of verse 18, David says, Every day I wake up, this is true! Every day it's true! My God has loved me like this! It's true every day! Even the day I don't feel it, Even the day I have to weep, even the day I have to bury somebody in my family, it's true. It's true. David rejoices and gives thanks. Quickly, verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate You, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against You? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. 
Those of you who know your Bibles, you know that there are ten psalms. They're known as the imprecatory psalms. Um, meaning they invoke judgment or curses upon the enemies of the psalmists. Let me give you an example. Psalm 69, 24-28. Just a few excerpts. David writes, Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous in Psalm 139, 21-22, he says, I loathe and hate my God's enemies with the utmost hatred. So how do we understand this as New Testament Christians in light of the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 27-28? Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. So how do we, how do we reconcile this? First, you must understand, David wrote eight of these psalms and other psalmists wrote two of them, these imprecatory psalms. You must understand that these men are uniquely the instruments of God writing the words of God. You and I are never in that place, right? So you must understand this. These men are in a unique place. They're writing the very Word of God. They are the inspired mouthpiece of God. God is speaking His judgment upon His enemies through His mouthpiece, David. David is affirming that God's judgment is coming upon God's enemies and that it is both right and desirable. Judgment is right on those who rebel against God. The second point I want to make about this, you and I are not like the psalmist in this regard. While they are the chosen mouthpieces of God's righteous judgment, we do not have that role. So when we say amen to David's words here regarding righteous judgment of God's enemies, and without any contradiction, we can obey the words of Jesus in Luke 6 by loving our enemies. We leave judgment to God. Let me just read it to you. Romans 12, 19-21. God says to His people, don't ever take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We never take vengeance. We don't have to take vengeance. We can rejoice in the fact that God... God's wrath will fall on those who have made themselves the enemies of God, but we don't do that. We obey the words of Jesus. We are not in the place of David. We are not writing the Word of God. So I hope I've made that distinction for you. If you are confused, you can let me know. I'll try to help you out. Let me, let's finish this up. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's personal, right? <laughs> it's personal and intimate with David. David happily bears the whole of his heart and soul to God. Genuine, unencumbered transparency, vulnerability, and intimacy. Let me ask you, are you that way with God? He sees it anyway, beloved. He sees it anyway. Are you transparent with God? Of course, David knows God fully sees his heart. 
uh, as he stated clearly in verses 1 through 6. But he, here's the thing. He not only knows it, he delights in it. David delights in it. So Psalm 139, David is teaching us what genuine, true, biblical, saving, born-again Christianity looks like. It is a love affair with Yahweh. It's never anything less than that. If it's less than that, it's not biblical Christianity and it's not saving. It's always a sacred love affair with God. It's knowing God. It's Jesus Christ's definition of salvation. It's knowing God. It's being in relationship with God. It's what it's always been. I know that much of the modern church is apostate. If you take Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, and, and all of Protestantism, Protestantism, much of it is apostate. It's always personal. It's always personal. Seventeen years ago, I read a book. I quasi-recommend it. The theology is a little spotty. But I enjoyed the book. It's called Sacred Romance by Brett Curtis and John Eldridge. They said three things I never forgot. The human heart was built for beauty, intimacy, and adventure. And when I read it, I knew it was right. When I read it, I knew it was right. That's what I was built for. And guess what? His name is Jesus Christ. Beauty, intimacy, adventure, His name is Jesus Christ. It's being in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's making it personal with Jesus Christ. Beloved, our groom has come for us. We are His bride. We are the people of God. And yes, it's personal. And I just want to challenge anyone who's here tonight. If you've been deceived by religion, I challenge you this week to get alone with your Creator and sort it out. If you have questions about this, I'm happy to, be, um, to make myself available. I'm at the other end of the email address. I'm at the other end of the cell phone. If you need my help, if you need assistance, let me know. I'm, I'll be happy to come alongside you and counsel you and talk to you and pray with you. But I think the key thing for you and I here tonight is nobody walks out this door deceived. I know the living God. I am in a love relationship with Him. And when I walk out that door, I'm His disciple. Or, I have been deceived. I'm only playing a game with God. And you've got a decision to make. Are you going to quit playing a game? Or are you going to continue to play the game? I think that's what the Lord is saying to us tonight, beloved. Psalm 139. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful text. It is personal. If you thought Christianity was anything less than that, you haven't understood biblical Christianity. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this text. I pray You bring these truths home to each one of us. I pray that we would apply them. I pray that we would love You above all things. 
Help us, Father, in this way. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to examine our hearts, to understand the allegiance of our heart. May it be the Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. We do this the first Sunday of each month. Um, you see the elements here.